Bankless Nation, we have a very simple question today. Is the Bitcoin ETF a big deal or not? That is the topic, that is the agenda in today's conversation. We are entering this episode and the price of Bitcoin is over 34K. So I think it just kissed 35K earlier today. David, are you feeling bullish, man? I'm, I am feeling bullish. And after almost two years of just chewing glass in this market right now, I'm not prepared to be hurt anymore. <laughs> and so if the Bitcoin if spot ETF gets approved and it's not bullish, I need to know now. <laughs> to get that glass ready to put back in your mouth. Yeah. I think that's the question. And honestly, we have the perfect guest to help answer that question. We have Alex Thorne. He's the head of research at Galaxy Digital. He's published a ton of fantastic research about this. And we're counting on Alex today, David, to be objective about this, okay? He's not just going to tell us uh, the bull case for the Bitcoin ETF, of which we know there is one. We definitely want to hear about that. Don't get me wrong, Alex. I know you're listening. We want to hear about the bull case. But we also want to hear the what if you're wrong case, right. the bear case for the Bitcoin mm -hmm. ETF as well. And we got to find out, is this thing priced in? Is there a mountain of capital out there waiting to chomp on Bitcoin? That's the question in today's episode. Certainly, certainly. We're going to get right to that question. But before we do, we need to hear from our friends and sponsors over at Doppel. Uh, so if you're like me and Ryan and you have a bunch of Twitter followers and a bunch of doppelganger fake phishing accounts, then you should be interested in this. If you are a founder with a DeFi app that takes in deposits, you might also be interested in this. If you have impersonators who are trying to get in front of your customers' money and you, then you should get in touch with Doppel. Doppel is an anti-doppelganger service. Uh, so Doppelbopper as a service. I'm making words up as I go. <laughs> Doppelbopper. Uh, <laughs> Doppelbopper. Yeah, so Doppel automates the detection and takedown of impersonators, malicious websites, phishing attempts, which are in getting increasingly sophisticated. Uh, you know, Bankless, we have impersonators. I know Blockworks just had a big impersonator. Uh, so if you plan on having a successful business, you probably are going to have someone who's trying to doppel that, uh, <laughs> doppel gang that. So Doppel wants uh, to help you out. Uh, so they already serve brands like Meta, Coinbase, Solana, and Aave to help out uh, pursue any phishing attempts, any malicious websites, cyber threats, etc. So there is a link in the show notes, doppel.com slash sign hyphen up. Guys, this is the service that we use too. So mm -hmm. we can testify. We, we it's use fantastic. This. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a free trial going on right now. So click that link in the show notes. Uh, all right, David, one other question I think we have going into this episode with, with Alex is, I know we're going to talk about the Bitcoin ETF and that's uh, Bitcoin has certainly been on a run recently. But there's also like word of an Ethereum ETF as well. So mm -hmm. if this is if the ETF is bullish for Bitcoin, what about Ethereum? So I've not picked Alex's brain on this. I want to talk about that as well. Any other questions from you going to this episode that we you want answered? Yeah, I really just want to drill down on the is this this is not a is this going to get approved or not? I think uh, generally, we're making the assumption that this will be approved by January of next year because that is when the earliest deadlines are up. The question is, what is the magnitude of capital that is waiting to purchase and why? And really, how does a spot Bitcoin ETF change the market structure of crypto at large fundamentally? Uh, and then what are is the, how big is this before after moment? So these are kind of the high level questions that we're going to get into with Alex right after we talk to some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible, especially Kraken, our preferred exchange for crypto in 2023. Don't don't buy the if you're listening to Bankless, don't buy the spot Bitcoin ETF, just buy Bitcoin <laughs> organically through Kraken. There's a link in the show notes to get started with Kraken today. Kraken knows crypto. 
Kraken's been in the crypto game for over a decade, and as one of the largest and most trusted exchanges in the industry, Kraken is on the journey with all of us to see what crypto can be. Human history is a story of progress. It's part of us, hardwired. We're designed to seek change everywhere, to improve, to strive. And if anything can be improved, why not finance? Crypto is a financial system designed with the modern world in mind. Instant, permissionless, and 24-7. It's not perfect, and nothing ever will be perfect. But crypto is a world-changing technology at a time when the world needs it the most. That's the Kraken mission, to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. Head on over to kraken.com slash bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc., PVI, doing business as Kraken. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. And now, something big is happening. Introducing the Cello Layer 2. It's a game-changing proposal that's going to bring Cello's rapidly growing ecosystem home to Ethereum. Vitalik has shared his excitement for the Cello Layer 2 on the Cello Forum, so has Ben Jones from Optimism. But why? The Cello Layer 2 will bring huge advantages, like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability, and one-block finality. What does all that mean? Rock-solid security, a trustless bridge to Ethereum, and more real-world use cases for Ethereum without compromise. And real-world adoption is happening. Happening. Active addresses on Celo have grown over 500% in the last six months. With the Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low and you can even pay for gas using ERC20 tokens. But Celo is a community-governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo forum. Follow at Celo.org on Twitter and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. Arbitrum is accelerating the Web3 landscape with a suite of secure Ethereum scaling solutions. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1 with flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. Arbitrum Nova is quickly becoming a Web3 gaming hub and social dApps like Reddit are also calling Arbitrum home. And now, Arbitrum Orbit allows you to use Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own Layer 3, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, enterprise, or user, Arbitrum Orbit it lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. Faster transaction speeds and significantly lower gas fees. So visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first app with Arbitrum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Bankless Nation, I would love to introduce you to Alex Thorne, the head of research at Galaxy Digital, leading a team of researchers focused on unpacking the market development in crypto and producing information for both internal and external audiences. And also before Galaxy, Alex was the director of blockchain research at Fidelity. So he's a veteran of straddling the trad world and crypto. Alex, welcome to the show. Yeah, David, Ryan, great to be here and uh, great to be with Bankless Nation. Thanks for having me. So the big question on my minds, on Ryan's mind, on probably all of our listeners' minds is, what is the spot Bitcoin ETF going to do to the markets? We saw the the false start, the fake start with the accidental slip of the coin telegraph tongue not too long ago. But then all of a sudden, people have reconsidered as to what position, what side of the field that they want to be on. Uh, and people have considered themselves offsides. And that's where we've seen a lot of the price action in Bitcoin as of recently. But like I said, Alex, I'm not ready to be heard again. And so if the if we don't get a bunch of buying pressure post uh, spot Bitcoin ETF, I'd like to know it as sooner rather than later. So just the question to you is how much interest is in the spot Bitcoin ETF and how do we even measure this? I'll throw those over to you. 
Yeah, it's a good question. We tried to answer it. Um, I, I will say we definitely don't know. Uh, we hear about a lot of interest. I think primarily the 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 segment that we focus on are advisors in particular. So that and those are an independent advisor, you know, Alex Thorne, like advisor with a storefront, but I don't have a back office. So I use Fidelity, Pershing or Schwab and, and others, these platforms, those are independents. Or it's an advisor that's affiliated with the bank or broker dealer. So the big banks, most of them have a wealth management division, right? Those are that's a big segment. When we add all of that up, that's about forty-seven trillion in AUM. Wait, wait, um, that's, can that's I make sure number. I understand that, Alex? Yeah, yeah. forty—that's that, a big number. So um, you've got a chart here from your uh, fantastic Twitter thread, and I think it has some of the numbers that you're just mentioning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. that this chart in the in the tweet is sort of the next step where we then discount that total AUM, but we're using as the top line number, this 47 trillion, which is the total AUM of these three channels, broker dealers, banks, and RAs. Um, is it this? These are the yeah, three 48 channels, trillion. right? Yeah, 48 trillion. 48 yeah. trillion. Okay. That's okay. It. Can you can you break these channels down for us? I want yeah. to make sure the, the bankless audience actually understands. So registered investment advisor, David and I call that, that's like the Edward Jones guy that you so, know was a yeah, coach so, on your stock yes, team kind of person right yes except <laughs> edward jones is in the broker dealer segment because they are a broker dealer so that oh. a bunch of those big names are in that bd or bank segment whereas okay. the, the raas we're, we call them raas here all of these uh, advisors at these platforms are registered investment advisors but what we mean is more independent ones literally like okay. alex thorne advisor right like all right. by himself so, so can you break these down by by line items I'm, I'm actually just going to describe the table because some people will be listening to this on the podcast and they, they won't see the glorious visual that you could see on, on youtube if you go subscribe to the bankless youtube channel everyone um but let me just describe this and then you can kind of break down uh these categories and who they actually are because it's very clear i don't understand uh <laughs> who they are but we've got a total of $48.3 trillion U.S. wealth management, okay? And the breakdown, the, the categories that compose that $48.3 trillion, I said trillion with a T, is number one, broker-dealer, $27 trillion. Number two, bank, $11.9 trillion. Number three, registered investment advisor, RIA, $9.3 trillion. Together, that equals $48 trillion assets under management this is all u.s wealth that's like actually first before we dive into those specific categories u.s wealth management is this all our money is this all of the american yeah. people's money so this doesn't include um self-directed accounts so like if you have a fidelity account with an ira and that you manage yourself that's not included here right if you have a brokerage account that you manage yourself that's not included this doesn't really include 401ks which are not included right mm -hmm. like our retirement accounts this is really like when you pay someone to do investing on your behalf. Okay. Okay. So, so this, this, is, this is the amount of wealth that is under the discretion of somebody who's in charge of managing other people's wealth who could potentially press the buy button on a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yes. And it doesn't also, it also doesn't include funds that you may buy like a mutual fund, which mm. is actually discretionary, right? Like the fund mm. portfolio manager invests that money for the fund. But for you, if you just have it on like a in an IRA that you manage yourself, then that would be non-discretionary. So yes, this is discretionary advising on behalf of other people. Well, that's directly. interesting because I do have a Fidelity account and uh, I could purchase some spot Bitcoin ETF and that wouldn't be included here because that's no. self-directed. No, and that's a major, I would say that's, I don't know if it's the biggest, we didn't look at that segment. And, and the reason is that we thought that the wealth management industry, these three segments you've described, Ryan, are 
the the segment that will get the most net new accessibility to Bitcoin exposure yeah. from the ETF. It's Right, because you and can already go buy Bitcoin on Kraken. Right, you don't have to like buy it in the Fidelity account with the ETF. I mean, you could. I mean, you may, but it's you've, you've can, been able to I buy it. I can and I do, Alex. Except that <laughs> I have these um, like legacy four hundred one k accounts and legacy IRA accounts from like previous employers and other things I've I've set up that are managed in Fidelity, and I don't have a clean way to port them over to Kraken right now. Mm. So. But yeah. that is one category. Overall, you're right. Okay, so right. I inter I interrupted you though. Could you describe these three categories? Broker dealer, bank, registered investment advisor. Who are these? Yeah. So so the broker dealers are right SEC and Finra registered broker dealers. That's a specific uh, thing they can they can buy and sell securities. They can do a variety of things. Right. Offer securities. I believe BDs can do. Not an expert to be clear in the actual compliance difference necessarily between these, but those are the big firms you know about, Morgan Stanley, right? All all of the big banks, most of the big banks are broker-dealers and they fall in this category for us. Then you have maybe smaller banks, think of like a regional bank, maybe can't offer their own securities, but they have wealth managers, right? They have a wealth management program. So your local bank, you can go in there and they've got, you know, some offices on one side of it that are people that will help you invest, right? Um, and then, the like I said, the registers and investment advisors, there's even another category of those types of advisors that they're just not affiliated directly with a broker dealer or a bank. They tend to use these more um, sort of white label-ish platforms. I don't remember all of the list of firms that offer them, but I know Fidelity does because I worked there, right? It, this is sort of a white label version of Fidelity.com, but it's meant for advisors so they can do sub-accounts, manage multiple portfolios at the same time, right? It's sort of just white labeling the the back office and, and UX infrastructure for advisors. Um, and I think Pershing, Schwab, others offer that service as well. So that that's basically um, what we're looking at, right? Because if you're an RIA that has an entire back office, like you're most likely a bank or a broker dealer anyway, right? So those are the categories that that we looked at. And, and again, we, we wanted to be conservative I absolutely think there will be retail demand for a Bitcoin ETF if it's if it's you and your IRA, Ryan, um, like you may want to buy it there, right? Um, we just, we felt that you could already buy it elsewhere. And so um, it, it, trying to be conservative, we just focused on this channel that really doesn't have access um, at the moment. I can explain why they don't have access if that's interesting also. Do, do explain why. So broker dealer, the bank, the registered investment advisor, why can't they log in, crack in and buy spot Bitcoin? Why can't, can right. they buy um, micro strategy? Can they buy like, um, you know, GBDC, like the Grayscale Trust? Yeah, they they may be able to buy some of the um, like Bitcoin aligned equities, whether it's the one you mentioned or maybe mining stocks, right? I think that that is they, they probably can buy straight equities, but those are pretty inefficient vehicles in the scheme of things. For I mean, right, they're not directly Bitcoin vehicles. Um, there's other factors that go in there. Um, the OTC products or the even the cash settled Bitcoin futures based ETFs that exist. Those are not on the the bank broker dealer platforms by and large. Those advisors that are that 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 work for those banks and broker dealers that do client portfolio management and advising and investment management under the banner of those bigger firms, they can only put their clients into investment options that are approved by the bank and the broker dealer. And wait, so they can't buy GBDC? They can't buy the Grayscale Trust right now? Are you no, me? not really. Um, maybe huh. uh, with a specific exception, but they would have to go through typically an exception process. In fact, I'm not aware of any of those that actually allow their advisors to put end clients into the trust products or the cash settled ETF, future-based ETFs. 
um, again, like I think, you know, if you brought like a, a client, if you were the advisor and you brought a client that was going to put a ton of money with you, if you let them do that, the bank or broker dealer might make an exception, but they're not offered on the menu. They're just deemed too risky, too esoteric. It could be a variety of things. Yeah. I mean, suitability in general could be a reason. I think I know of several, for example, of those bank broker dealers that don't allow cannabis ETFs or stocks, right? I don't know why. Do they not like cannabis? That's there could That's be any the reason. There, yes. there could be a variety <laughs> of reasons, right? So it could be that they're too costly, they're not suitable, they could be um, you know, bad. I don't know. They just don't make it through a process, but those have a process. It is possible, I'm not sure that the registered independent investment advisors that I talked about being on like the Fidelity platform or Pershing or Schwab, Schwab or these other ones, they may have better access because those platforms, they're not actually um, like affiliated with the platform, right? They're they're sort of buying it as a vendor. And so the platforms, I think, care much less about specifically what they're able to buy. Um, but as you notice, and as you read, that is the smallest of the three segments we looked at. And we took that into account also when, you know, the, the tweet that you showed before, the first one, um, that's actually us then ramping up what we think the adoption will be per year. And you'll see that we have higher adoption levels in that independent segment than in the others, right? So, um, and that's for that reason, right? Like if you if you look in the first column year one, we're basically handicapping the total AUM of each the of each of these three segments by our estimate of how much total AUM will be able to access it, just purely be mm. able to access it, right? So we're saying only a quarter of the AUM at the broker dealers, which is the biggest segment that we looked at, only a quarter will even have it turned on in the first year, right? So, mm. and there's reasons behind, whereas we started with 50% for the RAAs, right? Because we think it's low, it's less of a lift. The platforms don't have to perform the same amount of diligence or care to perform typically the same amount because they're not, they're not a fiduciary behind those independence, right? Investments. They have to do stuff too, but we think they'll adopt it more quickly. Um, before so that, I mean, proceeding in this conversation, yeah. I do kind of want to just like set the table about like what exactly the the parameters of what we're talking about here. So we, we talked about these three different categories, the broker dealer, the bank, the registered investment advisors, uh, 27, 12 and, and $9 million, trillion dollars, uh, respectively. Uh, this is what we are doing is we're talking about the mountain of capital that is out there that has never been able to buy Bitcoin ever before. Uh, and with this spot Bitcoin ETF, that pipe is now established between this $48 trillion and Bitcoin through the spot Bitcoin ETF. So like for all the podcast listeners out there, just imagine a pile of money that's $48 trillion large, and then look at the uh, Bitcoin market cap, which is under $1 trillion. I think it's like $600 billion-ish, give or take. Um uh, right now. And so like, these are two different sizes. Uh, obviously, there's not going to be $48 trillion of buy pressure uh, that there's no. other very many other assets that that is dedicated for, but that would be cool, maybe one day. Uh, and so what you're doing in this next step, Alex, is you have then shaved that $48 trillion off into 25% for the broker dealers, 25% for the bank and 50% for the RIAs, because you're saying, well, of that 48 trillion, only a fraction will actually have access to that buy button. So we're going to uh, trim off by you know three quarters or a half or RIAs right. uh, just because that is at, at day one, how much access there's going to be. So we're like reducing the pile of money that is actually able to potentially be interested in buying Bitcoin. And I think we're about to take this a few steps further yeah. about like, okay, well still not 25% is gonna buy, like actually a much smaller that's fraction, right. but that's kind of where we are in this conversation. Where do we go next? Yeah, so before we go to the, the next actual two steps, which are how much of those 
funds will choose to buy and then right. how how much will they buy? Those are the mm. steps two and three. But if we instead mm -hmm. look at year one, two, and three going sort of to the right in the chart, right, looking forward, and this is important because those two, steps two and three, we keep fixed through the entire time period of our analysis. So I'll talk about that in a second. But so what we're, what we're really doing is starting with the giant pile of money, the $48 trillion, and handicapping it based on segment. And when we look at, say, the banks and the broker-dealers, this is pretty straightforward. We're, for each of them, we're saying 25% of the AUM will be addressable in year one. 50% of it will be addressable mm -hmm. in year two, 75% in year three, it, we're not just totally making it up. There's plenty of back of the napkin math here in general, right? This is more like a, a way to think about it. We think it's conservative and, and we're using it to triangulate what the total addressable market is. But we did look at the specific broker dealers and banks. And like, for example, there are some we know of that already offer private Bitcoin investment vehicles on those platforms, right? So we assume, okay, they'll probably turn on the ETF in year one, right? They're not, and then there are, there are others that we talked about that made that not only do they not offer an existing private Bitcoin vehicle, but they don't even offer other stuff that people consider risky the way they do crypto. And so, you know, maybe we put them in year two or three. So we tried to do it thoughtfully to the extent we know about the sentiment or public statements of the executives or the people, like whether they've said that they hate Bitcoin or whether they're open to it, right? That's how we come up with this ramping schedule, right? So the only thing in the analysis here that we actually change year over year is the big number, the total amount per segment that we think will have access, right? It's just that mm -hmm. this first number we've been talking about, that's in our analysis, that's actually all that we change to, to ramp it up over time. Right. We just we, we say like the the level of access at each segment is going to grow as the as they turn it on over. Well, over because the big story here is, as David was saying, right, it's just like we're getting access to we've gone from like 56K modem to high bandwidth access to capital for our right. Bitcoin product. Yeah. That's exactly right. And the reason, Ryan, you asked earlier <clears throat> why they couldn't buy on Kraken, right? The advisors. And it's, it, I, I don't specifically know Kraken's products, but in general, the crypto exchanges, they haven't offered sub accounts in a way for, say, one advisor to log in and easily manage and control like all the various portfolios of their, um, of their client and clients. Um, and, and there's questions about custody. And, and by the way, also, even if they could, like some of these advisors may manage accounts for hundreds of people and they use really slick UXs to do that and have back offices yeah, and know how to do it. It's not integrated at all with it's not integrated, stocks right? and bonds. And, and if you, let's say you're a, a wealthy investor that uses one of these advisors, like you could say like, okay, well, you know, why don't you write down that I'm going to buy like, you know, 500K of Bitcoin or something and like include that in your analysis or whatever advisor. I'm going to go do it separately. And it's just like, wealthy mm -hmm. people don't want to do that. They want it all in the same place, right? And even mm -hmm. if it were in the same place, even in spot, like there's trick, like if it was like um, everyone just had access to spot Bitcoin through these existing platforms, like then there's weird like custody things, the, the brilliance of the eat and transactional things and like how do, how do we use it, right? And who knows? And also then all them, all these um, platforms that have to then build spot functionality, which is also, you know, hard, right? I mean, it's not, it's certainly not traditional. Um, whereas if it's wrapped in the ETF, like this thing just slides right in, like every other investment vehicle that is, you know, usable goes into all the same portfolio management tools. It goes into all the, goes through the back offices, exactly the same. Like it just looks like any other ETF. Okay, so I think the big lesson that I'm learning here is that on the day that this spot Bitcoin ETF gets approved, 
everyone who's interested in buying Bitcoin through the ETF doesn't necessarily have access to it. There's like a rollout period. There's yeah. like an initiation. Uh, initiation yeah, and we and we just looked at year one, right? Like, I don't know that, and I'm actually quite sure that most of the banks and broker dealers will not turn this on on day one. You might right. see the the platforms that serve the independent RAs turn it on faster, right? Um, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, we're, that's why we say year one, and we could talk in a second if you want about like, Okay, well then, like, like when, right? How fast? Right. I, I, and maybe like, you know, a lot of people are asking about, um, like, what about day one? What if the day that they're announced that they're approved, or the day that they launch, like, what does it look like, right? Is it a buy the rumor, sell the news? Like, what kind of is it bullish that day and permanently bullish? Like, I, I don't know. Um, but the, the, I just want to add the other, the steps two and three to the analysis are pretty straightforward. So, like, if you say year one, right? We talked about twenty five, twenty five, fifty for those three. Um, those three segments that comes out to fourteen point four trillion, right? Which is we just said that's about thirty percent of the total. That's but the total amount that ha would have access. Yes, the total amount of existing capital. To the other thing, we don't really estimate like if totally new capital flows sure. in. We're just sizing it based on the size of the wealth management market today. Size the pipe. Exactly. So then we say, okay, obviously, if fourteen point four trillion could invest, certainly they won't all invest, right? Mm -hmm. And here, I mean, this is a pretty back of the napkin thing. We said, you know, what's reasonable as a conservative number to say, choose to invest anything. We said 10%. Okay. So one in 10, I think one it could in easily- One in 10 just choose to invest. In yeah. Of any amount. It could be $1 or it could be 100% of their portfolio, but only 10% of the total addressable capital market there does any investment, right? So okay. now we're handicapping it again. Um, and then- then we rely on this, like, well, how much do they invest? And we say, well, we, and we just put out another paper about this a couple of weeks ago. Others have as well, but doing backtesting analysis on adding Bitcoin to a portfolio at various levels, drawing it from different parts of the existing portfolio, like drawing it from bonds or drawing it from equities or from alts and whatever, and we, this whole thing um, at a whole bunch of different levels. And I mean, you know, obviously at a long enough time frame, it looks it for for all, for you know Bitcoin for Ether for a lot of these coins that have been around a long time. If you go back further, it just looks better and better. But we tried to be reasonable. We said 2018 to present, um, which was two bear markets and one bull market. So, um, and basically the biggest, it was positive across all allocation levels. So again, 10% we we say here would choose to do something, and then how much on average they choose to do. We said one percent. Um, and that's because it was good. I mean, it was at higher levels, again, looking backwards, no guarantee that it would be the same going forwards, but at higher levels, it did better, even on a risk adjusted basis, specifically on a risk adjusted basis. But the biggest net positive impact was just going from zero to one, like zero to two was one to two was good, but none of the steps had a, as big a change, which, you know, you've heard this get off zero. I mean, that's the case for it. So that's how we picked that one number, right? 1% number. So it's, it's, Year one, 25% of broker dealers, 25% of banks, 50% of RAs, that's 14.4 trillion that could have access, we think. 10% of that capital chooses to invest something. And on average, they do 1%. That's how we get the 14.4 billion uh, in year one as seems inflows. conservative. That's what we're trying to do, right? I mean, we didn't, it's we, we're not trying to do too much moon math here. We really wanted to be like, this is a reasonable way to look at it. It's it's conservative, it's defensible. It, you know, who knows what could happen? There's certainly 
Um, I, I mean, it protects David from getting hurt again. <laughs> There's that's true. We're not trying to increase expectations too much. Right. I mean, that that is a, a solid amount of inflow, I would say, mm-hmm. objectively. But yeah, I mean, I would, you know, some people really like this. A lot of people said it was too conservative. Some people said it was too bullish. I mean, right. I mean, you're, you, when you put mm-hmm. numbers out like this, it can go either way. Right. Certainly. And well, there's one dynamic that I want to definitely um, parse out here, which is that on year one, you have uh, modeled out potentially conservatively uh, $14.4 billion uh, of inflows into Bitcoin per year. So these are flows. This is not just a one-time buy moment. This is now you are saying there is going to be $14.4 billion of Bitcoin buy pressure per year. And actually, that increases next year because of the increased access. So the next year right. that you have modeled out is $26.5 billion per year. So this is persistent yearly buy pressure into spot Bitcoin, correct? That's the idea. Yep. And and just so I understand this too, to add to that, it's it's net new inflows. Correct. So these correct. are inflows that we wouldn't have otherwise had because we're going to have inflows fly, flowing to Bitcoin. We right. already do have them, right? People are already buying their Bitcoin on, on Kraken to prepare for the for the next bull run. And hopefully hopefully you are a bankless listener mm-hmm. doing some of this. But we're talking about um, absent in ETF. We wouldn't have, have, have had these flows on the bottom of your spreadsheet. Now that we, with an ETF, we will have added another 14.4 billion in year one after the ETF is approved of net new inflow of buying pressure to Bitcoin. Yes. Yeah, that that is our estimate specifically, again, because we're focusing just on this big wealth channel, right? Because I would say, mm-hmm. where would the overlap be? Like, what would reduce that for like, what if we were right on 14.4, but it actually wasn't all net new? That would mean that you were a, a client of an advisor, let's say, and you separately had exposure to one of the trust products in your own other brokerage account, or you had a bunch of spot Bitcoin that you actually chose to sell and then tell your advisor to go buy the ETF. Mm. And I, I don't think that's a terribly credible scenario because right. yeah. um, there there will be people, but not in the segment, I think really that we're talking about here, there might be people that own spot Bitcoin and would prefer to own the ETF in their brokerage account, right? Yeah. Like, And so they actually sell it. Um, but that's not really the advisor market. That's, I think, more like a retail brokerage type market. One other thing I want to ask about this, Alex, is like, so um, yeah, I just want to test my intuition here, right? So this is imagining, this is kind of a spreadsheet view of the world, which is very helpful for analysts and researchers to kind of make sense of this and, and get to some actual tangible uh, numbers. But this assumes all of the broker dealers and banks and, and RIAs and you know everybody advising this market, they're just dollar cost averaging in, you know, like I'm just going to put some money in and I do it yeah. every month and you know, I'm doing my job, I'm dollar cost averaging in. That's not how investors work. We all know if the price is going up, they get super bullish about that particular product and they smash, they FOMO in, they smash the buy button. Uh, Don't tell me that broker dealers are any different than retail from that perspective. (laughs) And so what what we might find is rather than this kind of like 14.4 billion and then 26.5 billion, it's like if the price is going up, I would imagine some of this demand, well, the averages may be true, could look a little more choppy than in the the spreadsheet. Would you say that's uh, a correct intuition? I, I think that's fair. I think um, the, I, I am going to say they are a little different than retail, and, and and I'll tell you why. Right? These advisors, they first of all, when you use an advisor, typically they don't like day trade for you, right? They're not nearly mm-hmm. as active as individuals might be that manage their own money and and really succumb to that FOMO. I mean, I've used an advisor like I don't now, but years ago, 
during market volatility and called up being like, what do you think about this? Should we do that? And usually the advisors, they've, they've got a longer term plan for you and they're, they'll, they'll counsel against sort of rash moves. That's what they're there for to keep you. Yeah, rational. It is. And, and to develop a long-term portfolio. Right. And, and I think when you, when you think about sort of the long-term thesis for Bitcoin, it really is a long-term goal, even right. The, the, the Bitcoin maximalists will tell you that also for the most part. Right. So like, I, I think that the advisor world is is um, probably going to be less prone here to short term market movements in general. So it's likelier to be stickier capital than, say, you know, people with a crypto exchange account or like um, in their own own personal accounts. But but I, yeah, I mean, it, that's totally right. I mean, there's that's one of the the many things that can happen that change would change this analysis. I mean, I right. Dr dramatic moves in price in either direction, I think, would would alter this. Okay, so while we're talking on price, we've been talking about inflows, net new inflows, the the entire conversation. So we have a year one of fourteen point four billion in net new inflows, and that increases over time, twenty six point five in year two and thirty eight point six in year three. Okay, the the question though is, what impact does that have on the price of Bitcoin? Is there some sort of amplification effect? I think there's like a, a surface level analysis of somebody could hear this and say, oh, so you mean Bitcoin will go up $14.4 billion in year one. I'm not yeah. that excited about that, Alex. It's already 600 billion. Right. And you're just saying it's going to add 14.4 more. That's not quite how this works in the inflow world. Can you explain that to us? What's kind of the amplifier effect here? Yeah, this is, this is actually very hard to calculate like fully scientifically because there's factors like liquidity and market depth that first of all, are hard to actually wrap your head around now, um, will be hard to understand and, and conceptualize a, a reasonable uh, possible future under this market structure. Um, and also you have to make assumptions about things like liquidity and depth and, and, and other things that are really tricky. Like there's a lot of variables to really model that out from a bottoms up. So we, we did a similar analysis to this or so more of a top down uh, thinking, right? And you can think about like Paul Tudor Jones had talked about, right? Gold is, gold's market cap is X, like Bitcoin's is Y and like Bitcoin's only like 4%. And like, what if it went to like 10 or 20, right? Like that was how, what he talked about in 2020. Um, we did something a little similar, a little bit more intricate, but basically we looked at, we we liked gold as a comp and and people debate this all the time. Is this in your tweet thread, by the way, Alex? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This so, one? so yeah. Th so this is where we look at the, um, like the sort of the uh, the regression on price change based on the the mm -hmm. flows into the gold ETF. Some people were critical of our R squared here, but I think from from looking at changes in price, 0.27 is pretty reasonable um, for drawing a correlation. Um, but yeah, we we like the gold ETF for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, um, gold is you know Bitcoin and gold are often compared. I I've called gold uh, Bitcoin gold with wings. It's got similar scarcity properties, but you know you can actually use it. Right? Like you can't like you can't like walk around with gold bars in your in your bag and you can't really like you certainly can't store large amounts in, in gold wealth, really, unless you're like a sovereign or, or a central bank. Right. I mean, it's like physically heavy. Right? Like but with crypto, including obviously Bitcoin, uh, you can store huge amounts of wealth. It, it, in fact, the amount of wealth is, has no impact on the physical weight and all that stuff. Right. So there's that overlap. But also gold is a global a uh, scarce asset, commodity asset that didn't have big investment grade vehicles really until relatively recently, right? And the, that was an ETF and, and several ETFs. That, 2004, right? Yeah, so it, it, I actually don't recall, but like, yeah, mid, mid, I think it was around then, mid, mid 2000s. Um, so 
okay, so there's a comp, right? There's an inflows we can see, obviously different market at that time than today's market, like globally and whatnot. But, you know, it's it's close, right? And, so, and again, this is this is back of the napkin stuff. And we're trying, when you do this type of stuff, right? I also did venture at Fidelity at Avon Ventures. And, you know, when you come up with these types of TAM analyses, you're really just trying to triangulate on something that's reasonable, a reasonable way to think about it. You know, you're always welcome, welcoming to others to challenge these assumptions, right? You just have to make some if you're going to do the exercise, right? So we looked at um, like what percentage of Bitcoin today um, is in investment vehicles and what percentage of gold today is in investment vehicles. And then, um, you know, we think gold, and then we looked at market cap comparison, you know, gold's about 24 times larger in total market cap, but has 36% less supply in investment vehicles, right, is what we what we were pointing out. Um, so that gives us a dollar equivalent amount of fund inflows to Bitcoin having an 8.8 .8 times greater impact on Bitcoin markets compared to gold markets, right? So this is like the, this is the kind of, you know, we set it up a pretty clear methodology. I don't know if it's, it's certainly, it almost certainly isn't the correct methodology. There really isn't a correct one. Um, and then we basically model forward using our inflows um, and, and looking at the, the comparison and the, um, using that as a multiplier, we look at the the historical relationship, with, which is this regression chart between inflows into the gold ETF and what it did to like XAU USD gold spot, right? Um, and okay, then we so get, the, this we number, this eight point eight number, I really want to drill down on because if I my memory serves me correctly, as soon as the gold ETF got approved and was made available. Gold had just an insane bull run over the, like the next decade, I think. Yeah. It was like a, like a sustained, a very impressive bull run. And you're right. saying this number that you're coming to is that the equivalent of dollar amount invested into Bitcoin is going to have an eight times eight greater effect on the Bitcoin price than what would have been in, into the gold price, correct? Yeah, that's our view. Um, And it's, that's, again, that, like, and it's just, tricky. Just to be clear, that's extremely bullish, right? Yeah, I mean, it's just the it's like I said, it's the back of the napkin math. I mean, I think th there are some, by the way, there's some huge, um, like reasonable um, disagreements on this. For one, sure. when gold ran in the like mid 2000s to, you know, the, th you know, through the great financial crisis, um, that was a massive macroeconomic event that impacted gold's mm -hmm. price as well, right? It wasn't just accessibility. And it did also take a while to for inflows to really start ramping into those vehicles. So it wasn't immediate. And there's certainly, almost certainly were other factors at play causing people to invest in gold than simply not having been able to. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the basic. And then basically hold that constant, um, we hold that inflow constant, and then we reduce the multiplier each um, over each month forward that we look at, because as Bitcoin grows, then it becomes its percentage in vehicles to its total market cap, like grows, right? So the multiplier actually declines in our analysis, but it start right. And so it decays as Bitcoin grows. Um, again, <laughs> can't stress enough, right? But this is what we think is a defensible way to think about it. It's not certainly no guarantee, but that I think we came to about a 75% um, if you again, you agree with our other inflows analysis about a 75% mm -hmm. price appreciation from launch to one year forward. 
Yeah. And I think the disclaimer here is like we're stacking assumptions on assumptions. And so at the right. end of the day, like the, the rope gets frayed, but still directionally, we can start to model out some sort of prediction about some ultimate uh, actual price impact impact. And Alex, I want to actually see if I can get uh, a number out of you uh, as well as a few other questions as well. Just like, Hey, where is Bitcoin price going? Maybe as, as to the nearest of our ability to predict it, but also there's like a bunch of ancillary things as well. Like the market timing for when this is getting approved is interesting. Like we're closer to the a bear market than when uh, spot Bitcoin futures got approved, which is at the top of the bull yeah. market in 2017. Um, liquidity is low. Also, there are some other like side effects like, well, now there's Bitcoin ETF marketing from some of these big issuers. And so how does that play into public sentiment? Uh, so I'm going to ask you all these questions. But first, a moment to talk about these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. MetaMask Portfolio is your one-stop shop to navigate the world of DeFi. And now bridging seamlessly across networks doesn't have to be so daunting anymore. With competitive rates and convenient routes, MetaMask Portfolio's bridge feature lets you easily move your tokens from chain to chain using popular layer one and layer two networks. And all you have to do is select the network you want to bridge from and where you want your tokens to go. From there, MetaMask vets and curates the different bridging platforms to find the most decentralized, accessible, and reliable bridges for you. To tap into the hottest opportunities in crypto, you need to be able to plug into a variety of networks, and nobody makes that easier than MetaMask Portfolio. Instead of searching endlessly through the world of bridge options, click the bridge button on your MetaMask extension or head over to metamask.io slash portfolio to get started. You know Uniswap, it's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap Mobile Wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There is a link in the show notes. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax for providing token awards for your team? Toku simplifies everything about managing token grant compensation, and you can get started with them for free. You'll have access to top-notch legal and tax support to handle the distribution and management of tokens for your team. Toku caters to every step in the process, from user-friendly legal templates for granting tokens to tracking vesting periods and calculating withholding taxes. Toku understands every grant structure, token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, and all the other ones. Toku is already simplifying this today for leading companies like Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Foundation, and many more. You can learn more about how Toku can help you streamline your token management and get started for free. Visit Toku at toku.com bankless or click the link in the description below. Bankless Station, we are back with Alex Thorne. We are zoning in on the questions. So we got all these new inflows, suspected inflows coming in from the Bitcoin ETF launch. What's that going to do to Bitcoin price? And I think we were getting there. And you may have uh, mentioned it as a side point, a number 74%. I want to zone in on that. So what does this mean, Alex? And how much will these inflows actually impact Bitcoin price according to our analysis? So I've got a tweet thread up here um, that ends with ETF. First year Bitcoin price impact estimated 74.1%. What do we mean? What do we mean? Are we taking the price of Bitcoin 
as of now and we're multiplying that by 74% or like, and then we're adding that to the price. Like, what are we doing yeah. with the 74% number? Yeah. So this is just from like launch day one is the idea ETF launch. So I think we calculated it in the report as, as the bottom of this tweet says that at the, the we just used end of month uh, September because we wrote this in mid-October. Um, you you would basically take this ramp and 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 do it from whatever price Bitcoin is at at the start, right? So because this is really focused on inflows driving that uh, appreciation. Um, so so you know, with that... Bitcoin price, so let's say the ETF launches in January 2024, okay, and that's like maybe an estimate from from most of the analysts we talked to around that that time range. And let's say the the price of Bitcoin is 50k at that time, right? Then we apply this analysis on top of the 50k bitcoin yes that yeah that's the idea um but you know i think it's it's pretty reasonable to think and i think david might have mentioned this at the beginning too like how much of it is priced in already right i mean i think if we run that far like you'd you'd assume a fair amount of the price is priced in but again our inflows analysis does not suggest that like there's a priced in amount so yes in this analysis you would add 75 percent on top of that to me, okay. the price inflows sounds pretty price insensitive, as in they don't really care what the price of Bitcoin is. They kind of just are the DCAers. They're just the smash buyers. I don't really care what the price is. That's the idea, right? Like we're we're just saying one in 10 of capital that could access it would choose to. I think that's a pretty low number, right? We're not saying right. one in five. We're not. Um, now, could that be lower? Yeah, it could be one in 20, right? That would be half a percent, not 1% that cuts the whole thing in half, right? It's totally possible. We we don't know, but sorry, it could be 5%, not 10%. They could choose right. to allocate less, but <laughs> excuse me, the the portfolio benefits um, for the 1% allocation, um, when we came up with that, and we're certainly not unique in suggesting that, I've heard that from plenty of people over the years with different analyses, um, that encompassed bear markets and bull markets. So that included when price was very high, right? It still was additive to the portfolio um, over that five-year time frame. So yes, this analysis does not actually like calculate what would happen if the price ran up really high or really low. Um, that's well, just it's because you guys can't calculate that or else you're a market right. oracle and you know the future and you're right. you know you've you've uh time traveled like marty you, mcfly yeah. right exactly so, okay right. so but but right. i just want to understand that so per my example if in january uh the bitcoin etf is launched and it's at 50k over the course over the the inflows over the next year we would expect um bitcoin to increase another 74 percent that's another 37k and we get to a price at the end of 2024 all it's being equal of you know 87k or something like that that that's what this that's you know the math. simple yep. analysis would predict that's what the math absolutely predicts yes that's what it says and and i know we've said it a million times right just back of the napkin not a sure. not a sure sure total prediction here um but yeah that's exactly right okay and then can we, is there any way to anticipate like the front running then piece of that? Let's just isolate that for, for a second. So, you know, Bankless is uh, the number one podcast in crypto. Okay. So this is getting out there everywhere right now. And so a bunch of people are looking at these, these numbers from Alex Thorne and they're saying, huh, okay. You know, the, your price could increase by 74%. So I better buy now. And th that induces uh, more demand, I suppose. And I don't know. Some there's some front running. It, it borrows demand could, from the future. 
yeah. So are we, can, can the front running, how, how much will the front running dampen this demand is, are you just setting that aside for this analysis? Is there any way to tell? Yeah, there, there isn't really, I would say there's, it, it, it's certainly, there isn't really in this analysis, right? We, but I will, I, I mean, I agree. It's, it's actually really hard to think about because I can see reasons why it could both induce more demand or dampen it. So dampening is pretty straightforward. Um, you look at it when you get access and you say, gosh, it's gotten pretty expensive. Like maybe we should wait for it to come down more. You know, we liked it at 30, but at, you know, 50, that seems expensive, right? So that's the obvious thing. People might choose not to allocate if that were to happen or not allocate yet. But again, we're looking at a whole year here, right? Like we didn't say like month one, two, because we know there's a lot of variables. Um, the 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 other side of it is we've seen Bitcoin volatility come down over the years, like on a realized basis. Um, you can see that charts, lower highs. And well, it, when it gets low, it never really goes lower than the lowest it's been. It was actually like super low, like last year was super low earlier this year at some points in like the low 20s, which is very low for Bitcoin historically. But with declining volatility and increasing market cap and liquidity, you can actually allocate more, right? You can, when that's why we risk adjust that 1% analysis on allocation size is based on using sharp ratios and, and risk adjusting it for volatility, right? So if, if it got bigger and volatility is lower, then you can allocate more, right? Because on a risk adjusted basis, there's less risk in terms of volatility. So in that sense, you could see that there are people that there might even be others that we don't even really talk about, or just really, really big clients of, of bank broker dealer, uh, independent RIA platforms that have so much money that 1% like is a ton of money, right? Or they want to put some to it and they simply can't because of volatility and other things. So you could see that if it's bigger, let's get really big. Let's say sovereign wealth funds or central banks themselves, right? It's just too small for them. I mean, even at a trillion, it's probably too small, trillion market cap, right? So it, there are pools of capital that won't come in until volatility is much lower and liquidity is much higher. So you could... You know, so there is an induced demand factor too, but but again, like this is, you know, we really just can't know. I think um, the people, our analysis is based solely on the fact that we hear there's demand, we know there's a giant pile of wealth that can't access it, um, and the accessibility is what will, you know, again, one in 10 people owning some Bitcoin, I think that's below even the White House's estimates for people that own crypto. So I think it's conservative that the same numbers would carry forth into these new addressable markets. I think understanding that if the Bitcoin price appreciated significantly up to the event of the spot Bitcoin ETF approval and made accessible to all this capital, like rationally, it would make sense that there would be less demand for it because price went up. Like if the thing is higher, therefore there's, there's less demand for it. Yeah. But also I've done a few cycles of crypto. That's not how things work. Like when Bitcoin price goes up, people want more of it. Uh, and I think that there's definitely an argument to be made that like the marketing, the what is Bitcoin's marketing department? It's price. Uh, and so if the price does lead into the approval, which leads into further continuation, followed by BlackRock legitimately marketing Bitcoin to its customers because there's a big race. There's like how many horses in this race trying to become the number one Bitcoin spot ETF? Like uh, and so this is going to right now. Yeah. Right. So there's 11 or 12 like organizations, big capitalized organizations, all going to be marketing to try and jostle their ETF into position to be number one. So there's going to be a massive marketing campaign, right? Am I am I assuming too much here? Or like this is kind of like the more like I've seen a cycle or two of how this plays out. This seems to make sense to me. Yeah, I can't I I don't I don't know exactly what all the applicants are planning, but if you look at past like ETF launches or 
when REITs became popular, like you see a fair amount of marketing, right? And there's also educational materials created for all the potential buyers, right? So like, Bullish. like yeah, so I that that's going to happen. There, there's clearly a competition afoot, so. It's fascinating um, to me how much uh, Larry Larry Fink is talking about this. He's of course is the the CEO of BlackRock, the largest asset uh, manager right. in the world right now by a long shot, and he has become like almost Michael Saylor, <laughs> like in his. As I soon mean, as they have a product to sell, they're bullish on Bitcoin. I was surprised how far he went. You know, you you're probably referring mm -hmm. to Ryan the clip from a, maybe now two weeks ago or so when yeah. he said that like in in a in an upheaval world or macroeconomic uncertainty. Flights to safety. Yeah, gold, Bitcoin, gold dollars and Bitcoin could be a flight, part of a flight to quality <laughs> trade. Flight um, to which quality, by the way, I mean, I agree with in the scheme of things. I, 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 I know that historically people trade Bitcoin and crypto more as a risk asset, but I think it's fair to look at Bitcoin and say that it's fundamentally quite predictable, transparent, it's global, right? Like there are things that should make it like a safe haven asset in terms of its fundamentals. But mm -hmm. yeah, to hear Larry Fink say that I think was pretty surprising and, and I will say monumental. Okay. Are you guys ready to burst some bubbles here now? No. Do that. <laughs> no, sorry, David. We're doing it anyway. David, put put your mic down for 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 a All minute right, here, I'm going okay? On so the the bull the bull is going on mute. So, uh, Alex, give us the bear case for all of this because I know you've heard it. We've laid yeah. out the bull case quite well, and we've brought the the numbers and the analysis kind of backing the bull case, and it's based on inflows to, uh, you know, higher bandwidth pipe to a lot of capital. We get all that. What's the bear case for all of this? I've heard some people say that. Like this is overhyped. It's already priced in. It's already, uh, you know, front run. Um, look at the recent uh, ETH futures ETF. It's kind of just like done nothing with respect to numbers. Everyone who wanted Bitcoin already had access to it. Uh, basically, the Bitcoin ETF is overhyped. Ain't nothing gonna happen with respect to price. Just kind of like the the sound of a, a balloon deflating. Uh, yeah. so give, give us the rationale behind that, that bear case. There's a couple, I'll start with the, some of the ones you specifically mentioned, Ryan. I mean, everyone can already access Bitcoin, right? It's, it's something I hear a lot. And, and we've talked about this, how you and I can go buy it on, on exchanges on, on Coinbase or Kraken or river or cash app. We can, right. But, um, I've talked a lot about already why like wealth channels can't, right. They don't have access to those platforms. They don't have the cash settled futures ETFs. They don't have the OTC products typically, the OTC trusts. Um, that's why we only looked at this group, right? I mean, I think that that that's the first thing I would sort of say is on accessibility. Um, sure, like I said, if I have a wealth advisor and they have, you know, 99% of my my family's money or whatever my money, then they then yeah, I, I'm free to take 1% of it and go open a, an account at Kraken. Like, sure I am, right? But, uh, but most don't, I would say that use, um, and certainly the advisors themselves don't bring it there on your behalf. So I, I think the accessibility question, this is why we focused on this channel specifically, but it's absolutely possible. I don't really think of there won't be as big inflows as people think as an actual case. I think the real thing is what will what could cause there to not be big inflows. And I think there are a couple of things. One, the, the biggest thing is a significant risk off movement markets, right? Like we talked about how I think and how and how Larry Fink said that Bitcoin could be part of a flight to quality trade. Well, it it mostly hasn't been historically, like, and maybe it isn't. And then there is a need to fly to quality and people instead go to something you mean else. It's been right? more of a risk on type asset. Absolutely. Right. And and we could have 
right? You could have a, a a recession come or something like that, a big financial problem that's you know on the back of the rates and the and the inflation questions. Like that could all move risk in in ways that you know could dramatically affect people's appetite for something like Bitcoin. Period. Right? Like so, a, a material change in that environment, which is possible. Um, that could be caused by geopolitical events. It could be caused by a financial crisis. Who, who knows what, right? Let's say inflation ramps up again, huge, right? Just like in the 70s and 80s, uh, when Paul Volcker was in charge of the Fed, they they tried to come down from their first hikes, then they couldn't, and they had to ramp hikes way back higher, right? That could dramatically affect rip, risk appetite just generally, right? Which would certainly, I think, affect a Bitcoin ETF. Um, so that that's a main one, right? It was like... In terms of like the 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 anticipation versus the inflows, like I, I you know if I had to guess, like there are plenty of people now trying to. You've seen it in in Bitcoin price over the last month, right? Like there are people trying to price like reprice the asset given the likelihood or not likelihood in their minds of the ETF uh, of of ETFs generally. Um, so it absolutely could be like a buy the rumor, sell the news event on the on the announcement or the launch, right? Because these things also take. Even if you're bullish, like they could take a a while to ramp up. Like I said, even the most bullish platforms might not turn it on for it could be months, right? <laughs> it takes and now it's got to go through their whatever like risk approval process and committees they have. So like our accessibility argument could take longer than we thought, right? Even if we're right on the actual demand, like the the, the turn on the ramp up time could be slower than we thought. Um, there's plenty of that is possible, right? We don't know how fast, like like I said, the broker dealer advisor segments would turn this on. Like that's why we, you know, we tried to be conservative and said only a quarter of them would even get it turned on in the first year, right? That's that's um so <laughs> so that that's a major thing that could affect it. And and who knows, right? I mean, there could be regulatory issues that also affect it. I don't think Bitcoin within the crypto ecosystem is that like that much in regulators' focuses, but of course. Anything like there's certainly stuff in particular that um, could happen, like on mining, for example. One of the things you saw, you've seen all the applicants update their S1s with is additional risk disclosures around mining, specifically around that the you know electricity usage of mining could cause political backlash, which could result in regulate. So like that's something that could happen. Um, I don't think that's very likely, but that could happen. But also there's other regulatory stuff that touches all of crypto, right? Like we were talking about like FinCEN related stuff that. Could impact all the exchanges or you know we saw senator warren was effectively saying that self-custody was you know the chosen tool technology of terrorists um self-custody is important to bitcoin also right like that would be negative for bitcoin just like it is for any other crypto in general um i think and some people say well the etf's not going to be self-custodied so couldn't that even like be good for it and i'm like no it's just bad for the overall case for crypto in general if something like if a ban on self-custody were to happen you know what bitcoiners talk about is order uh, executive order 6102 the the seizure of gold by the US government right like that would be bad overall so th there's regulatory stuff like that that could impact demand for crypt for bitcoin etf um i still think like even if it's a buy the rumor sell the news on the event either the announcement of approvals or the launch or whatever you want to talk about whatever the event driven um cycle is there like that we're talking in this report and also thinking about it as more of a long-term thing. We know it's going to take a little while to happen. We know the inflows don't happen overnight, right? Um, and I, I also think you mentioned the ETH futures ETF. I mean, very different market, but we also know these products aren't really like that great, like certainly not for long-term. The longer you hold, the more 
decay and roll cost you incur. And and if you look at, and it's not like terrible, those vehicles are pretty good for short-term exposure in the scheme of things. They, they perform pretty close to NAT to like spot price in the shorter terms, but advisors are more longer-term investors, right? So that's another reason why they don't particularly like those products. So I don't, I don't know. I do I, think, I, Alex, a lot of the things you're pointing to are just general, like, you know, bearish, bearish yeah, crypto, right. bearish, bearish Nothing um, Bitcoin this. type takes, right? It's like, I, yeah, I'm I still think, bullish. I, I think even the, the biggest, baddest bear would have to admit that um, all else being equal, they, they could still think that, that um, your Bitcoin prices may be front running this, that it's overhyped, that it's all priced in, but they'd have to admit that expanding the pipe of Bitcoin inflows to the the tens of trillions of dollars that are available, that's like worst case. That's neutral for Bitcoin. It's not yeah. negative for Bitcoin. It it's not going to mean price I, I goes agree. down. It can't be bad, right? Right. And think of the the history, the trajectory of this asset. We are 15 years, about 15 years from launch. We just celebrated the birthday of the the Bitcoin uh, white paper um, yesterday, and we are 15 years, and we've gotten magic internet money worth nothing worth nothing, zero, okay, to 600 uh, billion being shilled by the biggest asset manager in the world in 15 years. That is quite the accomplishment, I would say. So hard yeah. in that context not to interpret this as, as uh, bullish either. I, I agree. And and you have to realize too how, how powerful just ETF, the ETF wrapper as a product is, right? I mean, it has overhauled the asset management industry. It makes trading, you could have passive ETFs that track you know, one commodity, like you talked about gold, you can have them that track a basket passively, like, you know, it's like, it's like a TradFi's ERC 20, right? It's it like is. A, it's like it's a, a wrapped, wrapped it's a wrapped <laughs> asset basically, right? It's, <laughs> it is like, um, and, 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 the, but then you can use them and all the infrastructure, like they're a standalone equity. So you can do things like, um, like depending on who you are, you can do margin lending on them, right? Securities lending. You can, you can, um, you can send and settle them like they're like intraday all day. Unlike a mutual fund, they can have their sh shares created and redeemed all day. Whereas if you usually, if you um, invest in a mutual fund, you have to send a check or you know a wire or whatever in, um, and it doesn't get added until after the close, and then you can't take it out until after the next close. Right? Like they're great products in general. They're they make they make investing highly accessible. Um, and they and I would say, I mean, gold being one of the most iconic examples. Like there was really no <clears throat> investment grade gold access period like you mm -hmm. could if you if you maybe if you were wealthy enough or whatever you could call up some of the big banks or broker dealers have like a metals desk and they would like buy spot <laughs> gold for you and keep it in a vault somewhere for you right but like you're not like moving it around you can't get in and out of it quickly right so i i agree i i also the the marketing uh, is a huge point right like it matters that and also if it were to be approved if they are to be approved um, that's a pretty big stamp of approval, right? I mean, mm -hmm. especially if you're sort of not in the day-to-day -day of this and you're saying, wait, the SEC has just approved right. Bitcoin spot ETFs. Like if that happens, it it talks about the level of maturity of the industry, the questions around things like custody and and transferring and and even like illicit finance have been sufficiently answered, right? For the, for, for the approval to have happened. So it, I think it's, there's a lot that legitimizes it. By definition, it institutionalizes it. And, um, you know, when the largest asset manager, keep in mind, I think Fidelity is the third largest asset manager in the world. And they're also deeply involved in, in Bitcoin and have been for years. So like, it's starting to look like all the smartest people that, you know, asset managers think this is a really good product at this point and should be approved. Um, 
You know, it's not little. It, it, the maturity of the applicants is also a big part of the stories we've talked about with Larry Fink and others. So, mm -hmm. this is a, a little bit of a side quest, but uh, I was reading this article about um, conservative response towards legalized marijuana. And as soon as marijuana was legalized, uh, conservative marijuana consumption just like uh, approached baseline. Uh, where it used to be like so anti-marijuana <laughs> really? and then as soon as legalized like yeah they were just like eating it's okay the consumables. Now. Yeah, it's okay now yeah right. some people so, are saying yeah i guess some people's reason was just we don't want to do things that are illegal basically right. and if 100%. they're legal then we'll consider it yeah huh. yeah and i mean obviously this is just like bitcoin's not illegal but you know if this kind of rhymes right just like as soon as it's gotten the regulatory stamp of approval people are like i'll buy it now we can consider it right i mean that's the other thing mm -hmm. we talk about with the advice because even if you could access the trusts or the cash settled futures, there's like suitability reasons why you, you wouldn't look at it, right? Like if you'd say, the, I mean, these fees are too high, you might say. I know the trusts have pretty high fees. Like that that might just be a reason not even to bother learning about Bitcoin yet. So the, the only vehicle I can buy is fees that are way beyond what I would ever allow my client to pay, right? You might say. So you don't even consider it, right? Same mm -hmm. thing if, if they're not on the platform at all. The second it's on the platform, like right. you, you've got to- You it, need the an question, excuse not to. Yeah, the yeah. question starts being like, well, like, let's say Bitcoin, you don't invest and your advisor misses like a big run in Bitcoin and they could have done it and they really could have because custody is taken care of, all the KYC stuff, all the compliance, it's all taken care of by the issuers, right? And these are real issuers. Um, you, you've kind of, have you done your job at that point? You really right. have Let's to Let's remember it. what we're talking about this capital. We're talking one in 10 choose to invest in Bitcoin at all. And then that of that investment of those one in 10, only 1%. That's what your analysis is. It's really yeah. a tiny fraction, right? Right. Okay. So as we end this episode, Alex, I, I want to tee up the question. Let, let's take off our Bitcoin hat for a minute. Actually, no, no, I'm going to keep my Bitcoin hat on my Bitcoin bull hat on. And I'm going to put over top of that hat an Ethereum bull hat. Okay. So the arguments that we just made for Bitcoin, do they also apply for the possibility of an Ethereum ETF, which according to some analysts, uh, James Seffert and others, if you get the Bitcoin spot ETF approved, then we might be, this is lower probability than Bitcoin ETF, but we might be months away. Well, months could be six months, could be three months, could be 12 months from a an Ethereum ETF. And if that is the case, don't all of the arguments that we made for Bitcoin then also apply for Ethereum and maybe in an amplified way because Ethereum is lower market cap. Ethereum has uh, even less legitimacy than uh, Bitcoin in kind of like TradFi, right? Gary Gensler is constantly like, well, I'm not going to tell you if it's a security or not, you know? Um, so what is your take on the potential of an Ethereum ETF to affect Etherprice? So I, our analysis isn't, I wouldn't say the, the price in particular isn't directly comparable because I'm not sure that we would comp it to gold in the same way, which is what we did for Bitcoin. But I would say in terms of accessibility, it all absolutely applies, right? I mean, there, there are not, just like there are not, um, advisors are not able to access, you know, ETH, Bitcoin, uh, they're not able to access these Bitcoin products today, the existing ones, the cash out futures, the trust or whatever, um, or like Kraken spot, like they're not able to access ETH spot really, or the ETH trust or the, so I think from an accessibility standpoint, it absolutely will have a pretty large market. I think the narrative for the uh, investment community is further behind. I also think it's thought of more as a risk asset or a technology investment than Bitcoin, which people are, you know, the Bitcoin is digital gold mantra, I think is really taken hold in a lot of investors' eyes. 
uh, and mine. So I'm not sure what the, I, I think it's, we have to think about it a little bit differently. By the way, we will think about it. We will rerun an analysis like this on ETH for the same sizing the ETH ETF market will, you know, call at some point. Um, but I, yeah, I think, I think it, I think the accessibility, which as we described, right, in our analysis, that's the main thing we're altering, right? I mean, we, we stayed flat at 10%, choose to invest 1%. I don't know if we'll come to the same exact flat, like unchanging variables, but the ramp could look very similar in terms of the total addressable market. Um, and so, and I look, I agree with, I, I you know, I, I really respect Eric Balchunas and James Safer at Bloomberg Intelligence. They've been really great on the, the legal and regulatory approval process timing and all that for the Bitcoin ETF, right? The reason they're saying this is because one of the core, pretty much the core argument that the DC Circuit Court of Appeals made in that grayscale ruling was that there's no material difference between the futures ETFs and the spot ETFs. Um, in fact, I think they said there was mathematically no difference, right? They, they used the term mathematically. Well, I mean, then the argument obviously holds. Well, like, I mean, if the if the SEC approved the Bitcoin futures ETFs and now they're, you know, doing work on the spot ETFs and, it, and if they do approve the spot ETFs, well, don't we also have ETH futures ETFs? Wouldn't the same argument apply? I, I think, I mean, I, we don't know, but I, I think, yeah, like I see the logic and why, you know, they could be forthcoming after. Um, we haven't done the math on it. I don't know exactly where we'd land. I do think of Ethereum generally as more of a technology innovation play than a pure digital commodity. Of course, they're both like gas tokens for their networks. There are things that are very similar, right? They have similarly, um, you know, not not that inflationary. They're both quite scarce in the scheme of things. So I can, I can do the EI-1559 conversation versus like Bitcoin predictable scarcity. But like, right, there there are overlaps, um, but I think it's a little different, but that could also even be extremely positive. Like I don't, so yes, I think broadly, yes. Um, I think it they, they would be big. I think they could definitely be big. There are a lot of people that own Ethereum and a lot of other people who might want to own it that can't currently. Well, Bankless Nation, you heard it here. There still might be some opportunity to front run, front run Bitcoin. It depends on uh, how you think this is all going to shake out. And it certainly seems like there's some opportunity to front run Ethereum. I will say one thing, Alex, is um, we, we recently had some of the folks over at Fidelity on for uh, an Ethereum episode. And it was really interesting, the, the kind of the the more recent narrative around Ether, particularly being staked as kind of like an internet bond type of narrative. So this idea seems to be in the early stages of, of taking hold in TradFi, which is um, very exciting for Bankless because we've been talking about this for a long time, which yeah. is if Bitcoin is gold, then Ethereum could be this form of internet bond, which could really be interesting, particularly if you had a staked uh, Ether mm. ETF at some point in you, time. You have to assume that the ETFs, if they come out for Ether, will will stake a large portion. I mean, I, it's almost. I I think most Silly of the custodians to. will too. Yeah. So no, I think that's a it's an interesting differentiator, absolutely from an asset standpoint, right? I mean, it 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 generates some kind of return, even if it's even if it's dilution protection or a yield or or whatever you want to call it. Like the it, it, staking adds an interesting component here. Alex, this has been incredibly helpful, and you are you are doing this from a fantastic uh, podcasting booth, podcast studio, I believe, yeah. uh, at the offices where you reside at, at Galaxy, and that is also because you have your own podcast, as I understand yeah. it. What what do, yeah. you, what do you guys uh, do on the podcast? What's yeah, uh, what's so coming out next? I appreciate that, Ryan, a lot. Our podcast is called Galaxy Brains. Um, it's typically we talk with our one of our head traders, Bimnet Abibi, about market conditions and macro for the first 10 minutes. And then we have a guest from somewhere in the ecosystem, occasionally somewhere from Galaxy, 
Um, this week, we have two of the top Senate aides that worked on the Bipartisan Proof Act, which has been introduced in Congress, which bans the commingling of customer funds um, at, at crypto exchanges and custodians, and also requires a cryptographic proof of reserves attestation on a monthly basis. Very interesting, narrow bill. Bankless, on the this podcast. is something we like. We like the Proof Act, Do we, right? Uh, like, Alex, like, this is a this good is thing. This is pretty narrow and straightforward, right? If yeah. you hold my funds, then you got to keep them out of your account, and you also have to cryptographically provide some attestation, that, and then an auditor will compare that to what they said you're supposed to have, and then that has to be published. We don't actually say, the bill doesn't actually say how much that it has to be one to one, we're saying you have to publish it. So we'll be able to know if you know you claim that you have 100%, but you don't actually. That's this the idea. This would give us some SBF protection going into the 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 next bull run. So so where can folks access that episode, uh, yeah. Alex? Yeah, galaxybrains.io takes you right there, but you can also see all of this stuff, including our reports that we talked about today at galaxy.com slash research. Bankless Nation, we will include some links in the show notes for those resources that Alex just mentioned. Alex, thank you so much for coming on Bankless. We're very excited about uh, the bull case for Bitcoin and um, months, months away, January? Are, Seems is close. That... Okay. We don't know, Seems but I, I agree with that. January 10th or sooner is the most likely in my opinion. All right. January 10th or sooner. It could be a fantastic new year. Alex, thank you so much for, for coming on Bankless today. Yeah, Ryan, David, thanks, thanks for having me. Cheers. Risks and disclaimers, Bankless Nation, got to let you know. Crypto is risky. Uh, Bitcoin, models are risky. ETF, yeah, so are models. So is analysis. So is uh, buying things and selling things as well. Uh, you could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's absolutely not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. <laughs>